This is Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you to understand and speak the language of our culture and to address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Really looking forward to today's conversation. I have with me on the line Michael Butler from the University of Saskatchewan. He is a PhD student there in the area of quantum gravity. Now, I have a uh, an oolong tea that's been brewing here, as have I <laughs> a number of questions that have been brewing that I'm looking forward to discussing. It might be of interest to know that quantum gravity isn't some bizarre field that has no implications in real life, but in fact, crosses paths with a number of different areas from computing to the area of apologetics. Michael, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Thank you. It's good to be on. Now, Michael, you're in your fourth year of PhD work. Uh, When do you anticipate graduating? I was hoping to be done sort of around the end of next summer, but with COVID and everything, I'm not too sure at this point. It's hard to sort of gauge exactly how long things are going to take. Oh, brother, I completely understand. I am in my final uh, weeks of my doctoral work. I'll be submitting my uh, thesis uh, any day here. We're, uh, we're, we're coming in hot, coming in for a landing, and looking forward to, uh, to completing this. Uh, I'm curious, though, with regards to a, a PhD in the sciences, what does it look like to come in for a landing? Uh, it's probably fairly similar. For my program, it's thesis-based. So I'll have a thesis put together. It will get submitted to a committee that's local to the university. I'll have to get their approval, and then it'll go for defense. So it'll involve them, and usually there's an outside observer as well. And then it's usually just sort of a pass or fail. So, Michael, the area of study that you are involved in is quantum gravity. As we get started here, I want to just know, how did you get involved in this field? What led you to doing a doctorate in this area? Oh, okay. That's a good question. I guess I didn't start off my academic career going for this. I just sort of went into university blind. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I took a few astronomy courses and a few physics courses and realized I really loved that. And then as I was getting near the end of my undergraduate, um, I had done stuff in both computer science and physics, and there was some research opportunities to sort of solve some problems in that area. And I was using computers, I was doing simulations and stuff like that, and I just really took to it. The professor I did that with ended up being my supervisor, and we just continued on. Okay, so you have a background then in computer science. Yeah. Where then is that connection? Because I think that might be an odd connection for some people, unless you have an understanding of where computers are going these days. Where's the connection with regards to computers and quantum gravity, of all things? Sure. So in quantum gravity, we're solving some very difficult problems. And if you just want to do it sort of mathematically, you know, just working through the equations and the numbers and just trying to find a solve a solution analytically, it can be very difficult. You know, we're talking potentially hundreds of pages of math, if you can even get a solution at all. So computers allow us to sort of approximate the solution instead. And assuming we can get enough accuracy, we can get it close enough to what the solution actually is, it can usually be 
easier or if only just uh, possible to do it on the computer, uh, if that makes sense. Well, I want to get into that topic and maybe maybe the first place to begin our conversation together is in the area of quantum computing. And then I'd like to branch out from there into some areas of physics that I think uh, are important for us to think about, particularly from a Christian perspective. I, I am fascinated by the topic of quantum computing. Let's take a moment, though, for those listeners who perhaps this is the first time they've they've ever engaged in the topic of quantum mechanics at all. Could you just provide a foundation for what quantum mechanics is? Because I I think a lot of listeners probably would only know quantum mechanics, you know, from their engagement with Marvel movies and, (laughs) you know, getting stuck in some sort of quantum world, but then coming back and helping save the world. Right. So it has a few different things that set it apart from what we call classical physics. So classical physics is where we think of particles as points, objects that are, you know, bouncing around off of each other and colliding. And it's all very discrete. So what that means is if you know everything beforehand about what's happening, you can make a prediction of exactly what's going to happen afterwards. Quantum physics tries to deal with the reality that that's not how things work on small levels. So there's sort of two main attributes that defines quantum mechanics. The first is that certain properties are determined randomly. So there can be more than one outcome, and which one you get, all other things being equal, is just purely random. There's no physics dictating which it is. Yeah, so that's very difficult from sort of that classical picture where everything's deterministic. If we were just to take a moment to to tease that out, because I think this could be helpful for people. Because right now there is a debate in academia with regards to is the world deterministic or is the world random, indeterministic? And so you kind of have these two ways of viewing things in debate. And I think some people then kind of take this position where they would say, okay, I'll grant that quantum mechanics is random at the quantum level, but when an object gets larger or when we're looking at larger objects, then they become deterministic. And it seems like a lot of people then just kind of have two different branches of science working in their mind, right? They've got like the Newtonian for large objects and the quantum for the small. Is that what you kind of see happening in physics as well? Yeah, that's very much the case. So it's generally accepted that at least at face value, intrinsically, at the smallest scales, the universe is random. But what you have is when you sort of apply the statistical averages of random outcomes, you get determinism that emerges from it. So if you have enough things going spin up or spin down, it should be 50-50, all other things being equal, and that has certain physical consequences that can be determined. But I guess the question is, does that have other implications. So if the universe is deterministic emergently, then it's not necessarily required to obey determinism, right? So if it's statistical, there's going to be outliers. There's going to be cases where it doesn't fall within the deterministic norm. Perhaps this isn't something that we we want to go too deep into, but I do think it's interesting, even in my own doctoral work, with particularly when we start getting into the area of philosophy, when we're looking at things that are deterministic or random, 
ultimately you're looking at two sides of the same coin with regards to its effect, particularly if we're thinking, you know, because some people want to say, okay, human beings then are deterministic, uh, or others want to say, okay, humans are random. But in either case, if that was your only frame of reference to understand a human being, then there is no freedom that's that's allowed there or any autonomy or personhood. I think that sort of assumes too strict a dichotomy. Just because we're maybe deterministically driven most of the time doesn't mean that we can't hit those outliers some of the time. And exactly where that line falls is hard to say. But I would say that quantum mechanics does permit for there to be freedom in sort of that, in the universe, in the choices of agents. But the devil's sort of in the details there. Yeah, I I think that's really well put. Let's continue in the discussion then about quantum mechanics as you were going there, because I think it's interesting once you actually put humans into the equation, you have an observer that has unique effects within quantum mechanics now, which I think would be good for us to get into. Sure. So that second case is related to that random outcome. It's that systems before they're observed by an observer or measured, they act like they're in a state of both outcomes. They're in a superposition of both states. And this has effects on the real world. So this is where we see things like particles behaving like points moving in space or like waves, and that has different behavior. Well, let me just pause you there because I have always found this to be a difficult part of quantum mechanics for me to really grasp hold of or to have some sort of concept. But one of the concepts I've heard to illustrate the idea of a superposition is the spinning of a coin, which I find to be an interesting illustration, such that you have a coin that you know could be heads or tails, but when you spin a coin, now you don't know if it's heads or tails because you haven't even taken a measurement of it yet. It's in this superposition. What do you think? Do you like that illustration? Where's it breakdown? Uh, I think it's fairly good. I mean, physically, it's it's something very different because you can get weird behavior out of that spinning that isn't necessarily in the example, but is in the quantum mechanics. But I think just to sort of get this idea of something being in between states, it works pretty well. Do you think that the observer is... Because this is, this is the part for me that I find particularly interesting when we think about collapsing the wave function where is it a particle or is it a wave and i find it i find it a little weird that you you can't even trick it and people have tried yep that's very true why do you why do you think that is do you think the observer has a role to play in quantum mechanics it depends a bit on how we're looking at this so from a physics point of view really all we can say is what we observe what we measure but the problem is that our measurement and our observations are affecting the outcome. So if we wanted to look at the other case, we can't really do that without being consciously aware about what that is, and that would affect the outcome again. So from a physics point of view, and probably where a lot of physicists sort of lie, is that we really just don't care about what's happening before the measurement. We just care about what the measurement was, right? Because that's what we, we know. That's what we can talk about. But I guess this is where the philosopher wants to come into the conversation and then throw out like Schrodinger's cat thought experiment, for example. 
Uh, maybe it would be helpful, actually, if we just take a moment to explain what Schrodinger's cat thought experiment is. You want to explain that, Michael? Sure. So the general idea is that you've got this cat in a box, and inside the the box, you've got this device that is triggered by some sort of quantum process that will occur randomly, and it releases basically a poison that kills the cat. Now, the idea is that if you don't observe the box, if you don't observe the cat and the device and everything, you don't know what the result is. And so the thought experiment is, is the cat both alive and dead simultaneously? you know, as a quantum process, is it in this superposition of outcomes or is it just one or the other? And so it's just trying to get people thinking about what it might mean for these quantum processes in an example that's more accessible to us. You know, we're not talking about particles, we're talking about something that we can all sort of picture and visualize. That's the thing about all the interpretations of quantum mechanics is they all have to agree with the model and they all have to agree with their observations right? Because that's the physics. Where they all differ to some degree is in the ontology, so talking about what exists and what doesn't exist, and in the epistemology, so how we know things and how we can justify what we know. Those two things that they differ on, those are metaphysical topics. That's not physics. So it is philosophy, and this is sort of where physics and philosophy meet, because where people are going to differ is on philosophical grounds and currently not physical grounds. And which I guess really helps you to appreciate what's happening at the quantum level is it has real world effects. This isn't just, you know, what's happening uh, on a small level, but potentially what's happening on a larger level in this case with regards to a cat. Yeah, and absolutely. Um, and that's actually hit some major publications recently. Uh, the LIGRO group, so that's the group that's been detecting gravitational waves, they were actually able to measure quantum vibrations on a mirror, macroscopic vibrations on a mirror. And that has really profound implications for how we view the universe. It's not just on these small scales. These things can have effects on things we can actually measure. Is that with regards to such as uh, gravitational waves from, say, like a neutron star imploding or, or something to that effect? Is that what you're saying with regards to what's being measured? So basically what we're looking at is when two very compact objects, so like you said, neutron stars or black holes, actually merge together. Which also, I was hearing about this as well, Michael, because I thought this was interesting, that then they were able to, through detecting these waves, that they were actually able to determine where the event took place in space. Yeah, so if you set up your instruments enough ways, so you're looking at how space is changing from enough directions, you can you know, triangulate essentially where that change is coming from. And which has been helpful because we point our telescopes there. Which is incredible because I think that also just confirms that this is accurate, that what we're measuring is is real, I guess, right? Like these are actual wave. What would you call them? Would you call them waves in space-time? Yep. Yep, that's exactly right. So it's it's actually space itself sort of being contracted and stretched a little bit. So it's more like a compression wave, like sound is. Incredible. Incredible. And now, listeners, before we continue, a message from our very own Steve Kim. Hi, listeners. 
As of the recording of this podcast episode, we are at 70% of our Double Your Impact matching campaign goal of $100,000. On behalf of Apologetics Canada, I would like to sincerely thank all of you who have generously given, especially during these financially challenging times. For those who have not yet given, but are considering partnering with us, this is a great opportunity to make your dollar go twice as far. If you'd like to give, you can do so at apologeticscanada.com forward slash donate. Again, it's apologeticscanada.com forward slash donate. All gifts given in Canada and the United States are tax deductible. Thank you for your ongoing love and support. We truly cannot do this without you. And now back to our podcast. I want to take this though into the computer realm because this is where I find it kind of difficult for me to wrap my mind around how a quantum you know, computer could work given all this uncertainty. Because when you look at the way that an, uh, you know, a binary computer works, you know, you've got ones and zeros. But from what I understand with a quantum computer, you have more than just ones and zeros. Now you are introducing superpositions into that, which allows for, hypothetically allows for the computer to do things that a binary computer couldn't do. Help me understand that. How, how does a quantum computer work in that regard? Like, and do you think it's actually, do you think this is something that's actually going to be helpful in the future? Do you think it's actually going to work? Like to my knowledge, I don't think that we've got like a, a really a working model of this yet. So yeah, those are really good questions. To answer the last one there, it really depends who you ask. You know, you have companies like Google who just recently claimed quantum supremacy, which means they've done a computation that can't reasonably be done on a classical computer. So according to them, they, they've done it. But the problem there is how do you verify the solution when our methods and our tools are those classical computers that can't do the computation to begin with? So there's challenges there. To get back to the original question, how do they work? Well, they're based on this idea of a qubit. So a standard bit in a computer has a, is basically a switch. It's on or off, one or zero. A qubit is same in its outcome. It has a one or zero outcome usually. In addition to this one or zero, this on or off, it can also be in a state in between both, like we were talking about before. It's in a superposition of both. But what you can do is you can entangle qubits together. And entanglement is where in this sort of superposition states, they interact in a way that now the outcome depends on the outcome of both qubits or both particles or whatever it might be. Is this where temperature comes into play here? Because I know that quantum computers require some incredibly cold temperatures. So is the entanglement, is that taking place using temperature? Uh, yes. So one of the things that's troublesome is particles that are in this superposition they'll entangle with anything they come across, including things that aren't part of the qubit. So gases around the qubits, whatever the qubits are sort of built into. So when you decrease the temperature, you decrease the kinetic energy, and you decrease the number of interactions that are happening near the chip itself. Oh, that's really helpful. So I didn't understand why they need to get these temperatures so low. They're seeking to limit entangling with things they don't want it to entangle with. Right, because the problem is going to be encoded in that entanglement. So if it's entangling with other things, it's no longer going to be the problem you're trying to solve. Okay. Now, is the desire to do this and to go the quantum route, 
because of the speed at which a quantum event can take place with regards to entanglement? Is it the speed or is it give you just different abilities to solve problems? I'm wondering, are these quantum entanglements faster than the speed of light and is information being, is there information that can be passed through these quantum entanglements that from my understanding are instantaneous when measuring one versus the other? Okay, so this gets to one of the sort of intrinsic problems of entanglement. This is what Einstein originally objected to about it, the spooky action at a distance. You know, if you entangle two particles and you separate them, the outcome depends on both particles, but you don't know what that outcome is yet. And if you look at one particle and it's really far away, it'll have an outcome. And then if you look at the other particle, that outcome will be consistent with the other outcome. So if they shared energy, you'll still have the same total energy, right? You won't gain more, you won't lose less. There'll be conservation of energy. And even if the space between them doesn't permit information to travel over the distance, unless it goes faster than the speed of light, it still happens, it's simultaneous. But most interpretations of quantum mechanics reject this idea that information can go faster than the speed of light. It causes all kinds of problems for the rest of physics. So we avoid it like the plague. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so then the allure of a quantum computer isn't the speed then? It is the speed. The thing is, when you do the measurement, it naturally collapses right to the solution. No intermediate steps. Whereas on a classical computer, let's say you're trying to find all the factors of some really big number. So you're trying to find all the prime numbers that are used to multiply up to some number. You have to divide, and then you have to divide again, and then you have to divide again, over and over and over again. And this can take days, years, depending on how big the number is. But in a quantum computer, you just observe it, and it's done. It naturally goes towards what the final solution would be. So it's faster in a sense, but it's also not doing the same amount of work. Let's move from this now into quantum gravity. So where does quantum gravity intersect with the conversation we're having here with regards to even a quantum computer? Quantum gravity is trying to solve this problem where it's very difficult to do quantum mechanics when you've got a lot of gravity in the mix. And vice versa, it's very difficult to do gravity on really small scales. The two theories view the universe in very different ways, and those interpretations of the universe are incompatible with each other. And so that brings about a lot of problems when you're actually trying to do the science. So quantum gravity is trying to find some way of bringing both together or reformulating one or the other so they can work together, or trying to find connections or cases where they do work together and we can go from there. Uh, So this brings about a lot of very difficult problems because there's so many different ways you can go about this. One of the areas from what I've been observing and reading is that quantum gravity is particularly of interest with regards to black holes. Right. So here you have an object that's really compact. It has a lot of matter, a lot of energy, both inside it, composing the black hole. Around it, you've got this really energetic accretion disk, and it's all there because of gravity. So this is a case where you're wanting to do quantum mechanics with the most extreme amount of gravity you can imagine. So here's where quantum gravity could really shine because there's a lot of things about black holes we don't understand. 
help me understand where your doctoral work then is is intersecting with quantum mechanics. Are are you interested in these issues of black holes, or where does your interest lie? Yeah, so most of my research is on the gravitational side of things. Um, so what I look at are these extended theories of gravity and how we can potentially use these as test cases to explore what quantum gravity might look like or what it needs to look like to solve these problems. So to do that, you bring in the, some assumptions and some conclusions from quantum mechanics into these problems. And so that's where I'm sort of familiar with it. I'm sort of taking some of the results from these various theories and seeing how they work with gravity. From those I've read on this, it seems like when you're applying quantum gravity to things like a black hole, that it leads some to want to postulate a multiverse. Uh, Have you seen that? Why do they want to make that move? And what are your thoughts? Yeah, I have seen that. It's fairly common. Um, It largely comes from these ideas of string theory and M theory. So these are mathematical models that are trying to be what we call a theory of everything. So it's a theory of quantum gravity, but it's also a theory of all of quantum mechanics and all of gravity. It tries to make a new theory that allows us to describe everything all at once. When you look at the math, these theories do permit a multiverse. But my concern there is just because the math permits something doesn't necessarily mean it's physical. And this is a lesson that physicists learn over and over again. We constantly get a set of solutions, and maybe only one or two of them are physical. And the way we know is we apply constraints, you know, conservation of energy, or outcomes have to have positive energy. You can't have an absence of energy on large scales, or in certain situations at least. So without those physical constraints, it's hard to say what the solutions are. So going back to this multiverse theory, we have no idea what the constraints would be for a multiverse. We have no idea what the constraints were for an early universe. We know these models describe more or permit more things than our universe does or how it operates because they're, they're sort of larger theories than that and we still need to apply constraints and find constraints for them. So I would say when people are arguing for these positions, they're bringing in some metaphysical assumptions to get there. They're bringing in something about their worldview that works well with the multiverse or the multiverse supports. So I would say the reasoning is external to physics right now. Interesting. Where does quantum gravity and the Big Bang match up? Why do I see those so often together? So Big Bang cosmology basically theorizes the universe being this very dense, very compact object initially, the singularity. So you get a case that's very much like a black hole. You've got lots of matter in a very small, compact region. It's going to have lots of gravity, lots of energy, lots of quantum mechanics going on at the same time. So if we want to model those first moments of the universe, that's where quantum gravity could really shine as well, because it's another case that's similar to a black hole. So I guess this is where the metaphysics comes into play and the multiverse once again. If we're saying that the singularity is like a black hole, and then we want to apply the quantum mechanics to this, it really is raising the question, where did this quantum event or where did this black hole, I should say, come from? Has it always been there? And it seems like then this would lead back into like maybe a a multiverse idea. And I guess what I'm getting at is I understand, you know, when we're talking about 
Big Bang cosmology within the first milliseconds or however we want to refer to that, you know, this is, this is where physics breaks down. This is where, from what I understand, like things like quantum gravity could be helpful to understand the physics of what's taking place. But aren't we still dealing with something that we're starting with the idea that there is something? Yeah, but I would say from a philosophical point of view, or maybe even just an epistemological point of view, physics assumes that physics is defined by the universe itself. So if you don't have a universe, you don't have physics by that definition yet, right? So it doesn't really say anything external to itself. And that's probably one of my other hesitations about multiverse theory is it's sort of assuming that physics just extends and that's not necessarily true. Um, And even if it does, it might not be any kind of physics that we have insight from based on what we know of physics of this universe. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. I'll have to give that one some thought, man. That's a, that's a mind bender. Help me understand for yourself. Tell me, how did you come to faith and how does your faith in science interact, particularly with regards to quantum gravity? I became a Christian at a really young age. I sort of grew up with the church. I would say that most of the interaction began when I hit university. And that's when I was started, started to be challenged by these ideas. And where you sort of hit this culture that's very atheistic or at best agnostic. And I hadn't really thought about those issues or how science might apply. And so when you're first encountering these ideas of quantum mechanics, you know, they're being thrown out in discussions about theology and philosophy. It's not just confined to physics. And they're very hard to respond to because they are complicated. They're difficult. So I think initially quantum mechanics caused me quite a bit of doubt and hesitation just because I didn't know how to respond to them. As I learned more, I realized that a lot of the things that I was struggling with wasn't really the quantum mechanics. There's so many different interpretations of quantum mechanics, and they are almost all distinguished by people's metaphysical assumptions going in. They differ by things that are not part of the physics. And so once you see that, and once you learn to recognize that in these discussions and these topics of faith and belief and you know how the observer interacts with the universe, these kinds of things, you realize that these positions are philosophical. It's not like there's conclusions coming from the quantum mechanics. And that even if people are representing them sort of as set conclusions, just having that insight, knowing to see where things are coming from and understanding the context has been really helpful to me. And really, I found there wasn't a reason to worry when people drop these sort of quantum mechanics facts and trying to shut down the conversation. You don't have to worry. Um, You know, either people don't understand what they're talking about or they brought in something else to frame those facts in a way that's beneficial to their position. So as a Christian, I actually see that there can be quite a bit of good that comes from quantum mechanics and how we view the universe. As have I. I, One of the things that I love in this, you know, I've really enjoyed our conversation because these are the the sorts of things that I like to think about. These are the sorts of, you know, ideas that really don't discourage me. They encourage me. They inspire me. Have you found that your faith has been inspired by your studies? Yeah, I, I would say it actually, it's completely changed how I look at things. When you look at the physics, you look at the universe, you see something that's ordered. You see something that's logical. You see something that has a description, not just sort of intuitively, but mathematically. We can very precisely define things. We can make sense of the universe. 
And that's just mind boggling. There's no reason to think that we'd end up in a universe that we can make sense of. And I think that says a lot to what the cause may be and, you know, what properties that cause would have, right? I think that goes very much towards a sort of cosmological argument for for the universe and theism and Christianity. It's kind of interesting to me viewing physics from a Christian perspective that you know, we've been wooed into the understanding of the universe first from a Newtonian physics, and then we find ourselves into this Einsteinian, you know, relativity general uh, relativity. And then we, you know, now we're now we're into this quantum mechanics, realizing that, you know, there's just such a depth and beauty that is just layered into the cosmos that to me is awe-inspiring. Yeah, it's... It's probably what drives me the most. Like, there's beauty, there's symmetry, there's just sense. Um, you know, having an intuition about something and realizing that it has just beautiful implications theoretically, it's very rewarding as a physicist. It has been uh, great having you on the show. Yeah, I, I think we're going to need to talk more. I know uh, the area of AI is of interest to you, particularly machine learning. And you and I have corresponded back and forth on that topic. We should probably get together and, and discuss this uh, in more detail. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, listeners, for listening to the AC Podcast. We will come back next week with more things to think about.